and welcome to CCBJ Perspectives Podcast, providing access to leaders and influencers within the ever-evolving ecosystem of lawyers and legal professionals. Today, our guest is Neil Borofsky, partner with Jenner and Block, chair of their monitorship practice and head of their COVID-19 response team. Neil is an accomplished trial lawyer, well-known as the authority on a variety of issues related to economics, law, business, policy, and politics. He works with companies seeking to improve their corporate culture through compliance, counseling, and monitorships, and supports clients in responding to regulatory and criminal investigations. As head of Jenner and Block's COVID-19 response team, he has been helping counsel clients on how they can navigate through this crisis and the government's overall response to the pandemic. Neil's a regular commentator for national print, radio, and television media, offering focus on the CARES Act, and related stimulus legislation. Fun fact, Neil is also the author of Bailout, an inside account of how Washington abandoned Main Street while rescuing Wall Street. Neil, it's our pleasure to have you here with us today. Thank you for taking the time out of your very busy schedule. Well, thank you, Kristen, for having me and for that very kind introduction. I appreciate it. Oh, it's our privilege to have you as our guest today. Um, we're really looking forward to this discussion. I think it'll be rewarding for myself and for our audience. Okay, I hope I don't disappoint. That's a lot of pressure. <laughs> I'll do my best. I'm sure it'll be great. So Neil, we're really here to learn from your experience and expertise about the relationship between financial institutions, consumers, and regulatory bodies. I suppose the best place to start is with your background, and I think it would be just a treat to hear about your nomination by George W. Bush to be the Special Inspector General of the TARP program, the Troubled Asset Relief Program, back in 2008, um, which is a role that you admirably served for almost three years. If you can share a bit about that experience and, and really how, since then, it's informed your approach to your practice. Sure. Well, back in 2008, I was a federal prosecutor, an assistant United States attorney in the Southern District of New York. Um, I'd been there about eight years, and I really, my specialty was working in, at that point in securities fraud cases. I was part of the securities fraud group. And earlier in 2008, I was asked to, to head up a new, a new unit, a mortgage fraud unit. This is in the, the teeth of the financial crisis. Mortgage fraud cases were going through the roof, and my boss, the U.S. Attorney, his attorney asked me to to form a group to really focus on 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 this evolving type of fraud, which was being exposed as as the crisis hit. And so, in the fall of 2008, as the financial crisis really really picked up speed, and we started seeing the failure of these institutions in New York City where I was working that were just unimaginable at the time: Lehman Brothers, Bear Stearns, AIG. And Congress passed, you know, the last big stimulus, then called bailout. The TAR program uh, included a provision for this job of Special Inspector General, who would oversee Treasury's administration of $700 billion and the financial institutions that were participating in it. And because of my background in securities fraud, in mortgage fraud, and the way the TARP was originally envisioned to help banks, uh, I was ultimately selected by President Bush, nominated and then confirmed by the Senate for that job. And so I became the Special Inspector General. You know, I guess it's your question how it sort of influenced my views. You know, I went from a pro role as a prosecutor, right, where my job was to detect crime and after crime had occurred to help clean up the mess and prosecute 
senior officials, um, including some of the senior most executives of Wall Street in connection with the collapse of Revco, uh, to now in a very different role, uh, an oversight role, where more making sure that the big financial institutions were complying with the rules. Uh, we were a law enforcement agency, right? So we also had an enforcement arm to, to help refer and investigate criminal charges when people did break the rules or tried to steal from the program. But it was also more of an oversight function to make sure that the right rules were in place to prevent fraud, to help encourage companies and ultimately the Treasury Department itself to follow the rules. So it sort of shifted from an enforcement and investigative role to one that had that aspect, but also a compliance role. And it really helped give me a, a much different and I think broader perspective that institutions were not just uh, when you're as a prosecutor, you really see only the worst of institutions. And here it was much more wearing the hat of, of, of rescuing these institutions, of supporting these institutions, but also making sure they're following by the rules when taking taxpayer money. So I find that to be so interesting because I, I've spoken with many people on, on different corners of the table, I suppose, whether they are law enforcement folks or outside counsel. And most of our audience have never dealt with law enforcement. So I, I think it's beneficial for them to understand the spirit of law enforcement and understanding best how to work with them when things aren't going their way. Do you have any words of wisdom? I, I know for myself, when I'm dealing with for example, healthcare professionals, there are some key phrases that I use or approaches that I have. Um, if, if, if our audience is finding themselves in a situation where maybe they're not compliant or they're not sure, but they're afraid to approach law enforcement, what would you say to them? From a law enforcement perspective, right, there's, there's different types of times when you interact with companies, whether it's financial services or, or really any other industry. From a law enforcement perspective, whether it's when I was at SIGTARP, where we were running a, a federal law enforcement agency, or when I was at the U.S. Attorney's Office, where I was a prosecutor working with agencies like the FBI or, or my agency, SIGTARP, or you know, the Postal Service, or one of the other white-collar criminal law enforcement agencies, you know, cases come to you when dealing with companies really in two ways. Sometimes, and this is, I think, is obviously the much rarer occasion in the real world, there's a rot in the entire company. And so, for example, when I was prosecuting the executives at Refco, the multi-billion dollar commodity house that collapsed in, in, in the middle of the last decade, that was a bad company, right? The CEO was convicted, the president was convicted, the CEO was convicted, the CFO was convicted, multi-billion dollar fraud. But in most instances, that's obviously not the case. What happens in most companies, and, and the people who are listening to this, I think overwhelmingly will fall into that category, if they haven't brushed with law enforcement, it's because there are some bad parts of the organization. There are certain individuals who did things, whether it's in a corruption case overseas, they paid a bribe, uh, whether it's inside, they, they lied uh, on some of the accounting to make their performance look better, but it's not necessarily a systemic thing that goes throughout the company. And so a company should realize that if they're unfortunate enough to be on the receiving end of a grand jury subpoena or, or an investigation, it doesn't necessarily mean that the government thinks that the entire company is corrupt. What the government is trying to do is figure that question out, right? Here's, some, here's an example of misconduct by an individual. Is this limited to you know, one person or one small group of people within the company? Or is this something that permeates the entire organization? Is this the result of, a, of, of an isolated compliance failure or an example of someone who evaded an otherwise robust compliance system? 
or is this a, a lax compliance system that was designed to push the outer boundaries of the law in order to generate more revenue and business? These are the issues that the government is really looking at when doing a white collar investigation into a, a larger company. And so how a company responds and reacts to those initial inquiries is going to go a long way to framing how the government views that company and where it's going to assign its place in this spectrum of REFCO on the one hand, a completely corrupt organization which needs to be put out of business and all of its senior executives jailed at the one extreme, or in the other extreme. You've got one bad employee who's really smart and able to evade a really robust compliance regime, and there really shouldn't be zero penalty for the company, and we should move on and just prosecute that individual. And so, so that's really why the beginning is such an important part, because if a company is non-cooperative and hostile to the government, the natural inclination when you're on that other side is to assume that there must be something to hide. Why is this company hide, trying to hide information? Why are they not cooperating? Shouldn't they be on the same side of us of trying to find if there's any other bad apples at this company that need to be cast out. And so a lot, of, a lot of important stuff happens in those very early stages when the government first reaches out to a company or, or a company first reaches out to the government uh, if it finds misconduct within its ranks. So Neil, many of us are a bit nervous about financial and compliance fallout from COVID-19. And we do seem to be following this semi 10 year cycle, right? Enron, the financial crisis, and now COVID. What do you anticipate the next few years looking like in terms of financial and regulatory landscapes? And is this 2008 all over just in slow motion? You know, I think we're going to see a lot of parallels. And uh, I attribute that to a, a number of different things. First of all, we obviously were having a change of administration. And the last four years under President Trump has seen a really extraordinary push towards deregulation and pulling back on, on white collar enforcement. Uh, the priorities have been different. They've been focused a lot on immigration. And you know, you've really seen a pullback in white collar investigation and enforcement in the first instance. And then in the second instance, from a regulatory perspective, a really much more hands-off approach from, for example, the financial regulators, the banking regulators, that's going to change, right? There's going to be a different culture that's going to be tried to brought in by the new heads of these agencies. Again, we don't necessarily know who the new attorney general is, uh, at least at the time that we're recording this, we'll probably find out pretty soon. Uh, but if names that are mentioned, you're looking at potentially uh, more robust enforcement and more robust regulation. And so naturally with that, you're going to see an uptick in activity um, of investigations. Second, I think as far as the cyclical, we have seen traditionally after a long period of deregulation of a real, and when there starts to be a tightening or whether that's caused by a crisis or a change of administration, and here you have the combination of crisis and change administration, similar to what we had in 08, you're going to see there's been a lot of lax practices that are going to be exposed. And so what I mean by that, you know, as regulators pull back and let up on some of the pressure on companies from a regulatory perspective, plus the combination of a crisis where companies are, are reshuffling the, the, the deck chairs and are de-emphasizing spending on, on compliance and paying attention to that, plus the fact that that quest and push for more revenue during trying financial times, that creates almost a, a toxic cocktail of potential fraud and misconduct where the heightened resources and focus of the government is going to be paying very close attention to that. 
So what I would anticipate in the next couple of years is a real uptick, not just in tightening of regulation, but of attention that is paid to it, of regulatory attention, and ultimately prosecutorial attention uh, in the aftermath of this crisis, just given that combination. And then you layer on that government assistance, which also you know, heightens government attention to potential misconduct in connection with that assistance. So that's a lot to unpack, I know, but I, but I, I, I do think when you look at all of these signals are all pointing to one direction, and that's for a, a pretty significant change in the regulatory and enforcement environment over the next couple of years. I guess it's a good time to be in the legal profession. Always a good time <laughs> to be in the legal profession, one way or the other. So specifically white collar enforcement, can you shed some light on, on what that looks like? We, we touched on it earlier, just in terms of not being cooperative, but white collar is something that is of course of interest to our audience in particular. And I've had a few conversations over the years with folks about this. And um, the common wisdom is that generally speaking, the in-house counsel, uh, as long as they're compliant and ethical, they're usually the last person standing. And, and how do you advise people if they have you know, concerns about what's going on with other officials in the C-suite or executives in the C-suite or directors and their participation or maybe turning a blind eye to bad behavior? You know, I think at, at its core, what people need to remember is that prosecutors are people, right? <laughs> uh, which, which I think sometimes gets lost. And so much of this is very, you know, the, the cases and the investigations can be hopelessly complex, but a lot of the decisions become relatively simple. And so, you know, in your example, if a senior person is advised that there is a problem, a compliance related problem, potential criminal problem, and they turn a blind eye and a government official learns of that information, that's not going to go well for that individual. And if the person is senior enough, it's not going to go well for the company. And, you know, you can put and layer legal theory and you can look at complex elements of different types of transactions, but it usually just comes down to, to something as simple as, as, as common sense and right and wrong. And, and I don't mean to oversimplify, but from a prosecutor and investigative perspective, it's often just that simple when you're trying to assess the culpability of, of a company. And so it is, it is really important for the chief compliance officer, for the general counsel, uh, to be sounding alarms, you know, and, and that becomes difficult during a time of crisis, right? Because when the entire economy is, is, is hanging on the edge, when costs are being slashed, and there's this great pressure to increase revenue or cut the losses in revenue and to reduce expenses, there is a tendency in the business to push the envelope to do what's necessary to meet the, the expectations of the market, to meet the expectations of investors. And, but that is where, when it is most difficult is when obviously the general counsel and the chief compliance officer's job is the most important to be that sober voice and to be thinking not just what's going to happen in the next quarter, but what's gonna happen a year from now. What's, how are we going to have to live with this decision and what is its impact going to be on the individuals in the company you know, if this eventually makes its way to the government. Um, and, and I think that, you know, ultimately comes down to 
the culture of the company? Is it a culture that respects and prioritizes and values compliant and ethical behavior? And if so, that's going to help make the, the control functions job a lot easier? Or is it one that's not? Or is it one more likely that's in transition? And you know, a lot of these decisions are there. And I think you know, having a strong alliance with the CEO who understands these issues and believes in the, these types of issues it is obviously also going to be really helpful for that compliance officer or general counsel. So Neil, maybe we can just talk a little bit about the difference between what I'll call an oops and intent and you know how one may be a flawed compliance behavior versus um, a criminal behavior. Well, sure. I mean, I, I think that you know an oops compliance mistake that you know is something that obviously is dealt with internally. It is unlikely in those instances that the government's going to get involved. Uh, depending on how regulated your industry is and how severe the oops is, there's a chance the regulator might not be aware of it. And there might be, you know, again, if it doesn't raise to a material enough level, you know, there might not be an obligation to inform the regulator. You know, so for those types of oops issues, you know, I think what the, the incumbent thing is, is to get to the root cause of what happened to the mistake, see if it's systemic. Uh, I think he, it's, it's an, often a mistake to just assume or presume that an area of misconduct or a mistake, even if it doesn't rise to the level of criminality, is just an isolated problem. Uh, and I think it's important to take a, a good look at the root cause and see if this is a systemic issue that goes beyond this, the one instance that, that, that you're talking about. And again, I think each, each failure in a compliance system is an opportunity to take a look at the culture of, that, of, of the company in the system uh, to see one, how was this oops allowed to occur? And second, just importantly, how does the organization react to the oops? Um, is it to sort of take a close look, take the right, ty right types of remedial measures to ensure that it doesn't happen again? Is there training that is adjusted to deal with that oops to make sure it doesn't happen again? Or is it kind of just ignored or swept under the rug, right? I think those are, those are good learning points when, when they occur. And I should say, if that if there subsequently is an act that the government or a regulator is looking at, if the company can look back and say, look, we had this issue before and this is how we dealt with it, that's a strong sign that this is an organization that has a, a vibrant and strong culture and that whatever the subsequent problem is, maybe it isn't viewed as, as a systemic problem or a rot in the company. Obviously, if you find out about criminal behavior with your, your organization, that raises a whole different level of concerns and issues that you know you need to be more proactive about. There, there really is no option of sweeping it under the rug. Uh, it has to be remediated. You have to do a root cause. You have to make sure that there's not a problem. And you have to make the very, very difficult and delicate decision of whether to disclose that conduct to the government or, or, or to authorities or not, uh, which is never, uh, which is often not incredibly clear. So a lot of it depends on the facts and circumstances, but you know, there are very different reactions to very different problems. But at the end of the day, from a control function perspective, it's a similar question. Is this an isolated incident or is this part of a bigger problem that we need to really get to the heart of and, and remediate? Thank you. I, I think those insights will be quite valuable. Neil, as we were preparing for this episode, you mentioned some new developments in your role in practice with Jenner and Block, which you think that we're going to be facing. Can you talk about that a little bit? 
Sure. I think, you know, Jenner and Block as a law firm, uh, much like many companies when, when sort of confronted with this crisis, took a look at itself and our, our strategic direction and what we're doing, what we do well and try to prepare, right, for what's coming uh, in the legal landscape. And so we're in the process of, of, of launching um, a new sub-practice group called the Financial Services Litigation Group, of which I'm going to be co-chair, where we uh, are anticipating you know, an uptick in cases against larger financial institutions. You know, it's one of the things obviously we saw very much in the last financial crisis was an onslaught of litigation as uh, investors, buy side, those are sort of on the other side of the big Wall Street firms um, were confronted with, um, you know, huge amount of losses and, and frankly, a lot of fraud. That that existed on Wall Street by big by big banks, and it's the, those are the types of frauds and that I became very familiar with as as, as Special Inspector General for TARP, and, and in the aftermath of the financial crisis, and so for us at Jenner, you know, we traditionally, uh, although I don't think we're commonly thought of as a plaintiffs firm, we do because we do a lot of work on on both sides of defense and and the plaintiffs work, uh, but traditionally we do have a comp. We've noticed that we do have a conflicts profile that enables us to be adverse to big banks. That's one of the reasons why we have a, a monitorship practice, which I also chair, is because we can be the monitor of a Credit Suisse or uh, a, a city group and, and other big big financial institutions. And we also sort of have a track record and history of success in cases against big banks. And so we thought maybe it would make sense to take that strategy and formalize it into a practice group and be uh, a little bit more proactive and focused in taking on these types of cases. And, and you know, the bottom line, one of the things that we would expect in the aftermath of, this, of, of, of the COVID crisis and in the recovery is we're going to be seeing an uptick in those types of litigations. Again, also accompanied by, I think, the tightening of, of, of regulation and government activity. It's gonna likely expose certain types of lending practice, certain types of financial instruments, that have been developed in the last, not just in the last four years, but the last 10 years. Uh, and we're already seeing an uptick in interest and in initial inquiries. And so our, our plan is, is, is to meet the market on this, uh, to form a practice group that is focused on these types of cases um, and you know, to be in a position to be one of the go-to firms, you know, given our tremendous um, experience and expertise in high value litigation and, and to do it on, on, on the side of, of those who are, uh, potentially victimized by practices of some of the big financial institutions, as well as representing other institutions against financial institutions and sort of taking advantage of our, our conflicts profile to do these types of cases. Well, we will be keeping a close eye on that for sure, and hoping that you'll keep us informed in terms of what you're seeing to the best that you're permitted. Um, Neil, as we're just wrapping this, I, I just want to ask you, if you had a piece of advice or two for a newer attorney or even a more mature attorney considering joining in public service, what would that be? Do it. <laughs> that's, a, that's probably my simplest answer. Um, I think that um, there are fewer rewards, fewer things more rewarding than, than public service as an attorney. And um, just for a variety of, of reasons. First and foremost, as you said, you're, you're talking about the perspective of someone who is considering it. Um, if you have that bug to serve, there's, there's very little 
downside other than a short-term, you know, potentially short-term economic hit. You make a lot less money working for the government than you do in private practice, but it is more than offset by um, the type of experience that you get, the camaraderie you get, uh, and just the overall experience. Um, you know, for me, it was going to work as a prosecutor, but obviously there are so many areas in public service other than enforcement of criminal, criminal or even civil laws, uh, whether it's working as a public defender, if you're in the criminal law practice or going to work for a governmental agency. You know, one of the things I am constantly telling associates in our practice, uh, particularly those in our white collar practice is I strongly encourage them. And I, I hate to see them leave Jenner, uh, but I'm, con I, you know, we're constantly, and as, and as a firm, as a practice group, we do this, we constantly encourage them to go follow their, their public interest dreams, go work for the government, go try cases, get that incredible experience that you often can only get in, in, in public service. And then if you want to come back, we'll love to have you. It'll take you back with open arms and take advantage of all this wonderful experience that you just gained. And I have these conversations, I mean, almost on a daily basis with folks. Um, so I would say to, to junior attorneys, if you're thinking about it and you have the opportunity, uh, you should pursue it. Uh, it will, when I look back on my career, the things that I learned that I never would have imagined that I could learn by being working for the government and how much that informs my role in private practice, whether it's um, you know, monitoring a big financial institution or providing advice to, to a company that's navigating the, 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 the worlds of the CARES Act and COVID, the experiences that I can draw upon from my time in public service is they're just just invaluable. And, you know, frankly, I also tell say the same thing to lawyers who are not so new. You know, people who are out five, 10 years, even partners at law firms, you know, who who sort of always wanted to do this type of thing. I, I encourage them to look at those opportunities because uh, there, there are a few things that are more rewarding and get more relevant and important experience than public service. So that's that's my public service announcement. I love it. I love it. I think, I do think that is a cogent point that, this is a relationship profession where you have your colleagues. It's not like you're sitting in a cubicle just drafting contracts all day when you choose to be a social participant. Um, and I think that that is a valuable thing for, for our audience to remind themselves of maybe, which is, you know, you're, whether you're working with the government, you're working with your outside counsel, you're working with your in-house counsel, we're all in it together. Um, and nobody got into it just to make money. You know, Chris, I think that is such a good point. And, you know, one of the things, again, one of the valuable aspects of government service is it, it, it is such a collaborative effort. It is an all for one, right? Everyone is on the same side and we're all trying to achieve the same results. And I think when you get into law firms and you get into, you know, in-house departments, that's the ideal culture, but it often isn't the actual culture. And I think that, you know, the law firms that not just do well financially, I think that's important, but where people are happy <laughs> and enjoy their work, and I think the same goes for law departments, are those that, that have that collaborative experience where it's not every person for themselves, and it's not about getting the most personal credit for whatever the project is, uh, but those who, who, who sort of buy into the collective are, are the ones that are most successful and, and, and just as important, the most happy, because at the end of the day, this, you spend a lot of time at, at this job if you're in the legal profession. Um, and I think that's, you know, for junior attorneys and people looking to move to different positions, um, you know, I talked a lot earlier about how culture is just so important 
from a compliance perspective, uh, but it's also really important from a, a quality of life and, and happiness perspective, particularly legal professions. So I think, I think that's an excellent point you made. Well, Neil, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate your perspective. It's certainly a unique one given everything that you've contributed over the years. And um, I hope that we will have you back again soon. Anytime, it would be my pleasure.